Welcome to Everyday Church. Welcome to this moment when we come to the end of our journey through John's Gospel. Back in January, we started 35 sermons through 2022. And what a journey that has been. We've seen the Word become flesh, water turn into wine, Nicodemus sneaking in at night. We've heard God so loved the world and you must be born again. A woman at a well and a spring that will never run dry. Healing after healing, sign after sign. 5,000 fed, and I am the bread. Come to me all who are thirsty, but his time is not yet at hand. Jesus challenged by people's trickery, though no one would throw the first stone. Teaching with authority, sight for the blind, I am the good shepherd. No better you'll find. Jesus weeps at the graveside, then raises the dead, Perfume poured out, Hosanna declared. Then the story slowed down. We stepped back from the street, a Passover meal and washing of feet. The breaking of bread, eyes that betray, blood will be spilled, for I am the way. The Spirit is promised. Jesus claims, You are mine. The Father's the gardener, but He is the vine. The world will oppose you, but do not despair. Keep going together, for this is his prayer. Betrayed and arrested, Christ stands there alone, beaten and blooded. The cross is his throne. And then in the garden, to Mary's delight, her saviour before her, death loses its might. The doubter encountered, the denier restored, and all of it written for Jesus is Lord. What a gospel. What a gospel we have walked through. In fact, we may have run through it at times. For some of you, you might have thought John was never going to end. As a preacher, I felt we were constantly skimming the surface. But what a journey. And this journey ends today. And we end where we started. We end on a beach in Galilee with disciples who are fishing. Let's work through our final chapter, chapter 21 of John's Gospel, starting at verse 1. Afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends. Haven't you got any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat. You'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Let's pause there. This should sound familiar. If you uh, know the Gospels, you will know this is not the first time we've had a miraculous catch of fish. 
John is writing, as we've learned, the latest of the Gospels. It's the last one written. He wrote it a number of years after the other Gospels. So he does not always include the details you find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this, uh, this event seems to happen in Luke's Gospel much earlier. It happens in Luke chapter 5. So what's going on here? Is John simply repeating an event but in the wrong place? Well, well, no. I, I think there are two. There are clear similarities. But I think, and many scholars agree with me, that these are two separate but similar events. And I believe that not least because both accounts are linked to the same individual but in different settings. Both accounts involve fishermen and large caches of fish. And both accounts actually focus on Peter, Simon's son of John, as he originally was. In Luke's gospel, the miraculous cache of fish is key to Peter's first calling as a disciple. And here, as we will see, the miraculous cache of fish is key for Peter's restoration after his denial. So let's read on. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish. For they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. What do we notice from these verses? As we've said before, John doesn't record everything. In fact, even at the end of this chapter, he says, if I'd recorded everything that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world. So John chooses what he includes. John is totally inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's why this is seen as scripture. But it's not a random download. He is trying to make a point. And so he includes things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because he wants to communicate key points to us. So what is he trying to communicate in this final chapter? Well, here are some of the things I think John is trying to say to us and through him, God is trying to say to us even now. Firstly, notice the disciples are together. After Jesus' arrest and crucifixion, there was a moment of scattering out of fear, out of concern, maybe for family and loved ones. The disciples scattered, but they quickly re 
together. And here we see them together. We see them in community because they have been taught about community. Jesus has taught them about community. He has prayed community over them. He's modelled community. He's gathered. He's kept them together. And it's wonderful to see that therefore once the initial shock of the crucifixion is over, even before they knew that Christ had been raised, we find them together. And here we find them together again. Notice also that there is still a level of progressive revelation. They see Jesus, but they don't recognize him. Now, maybe that's just because of distance. Maybe that's just the mist on the lake. But I think it's also reminding us that it can take some time to realize who Jesus truly is. We know there are about 40 days between the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus. And we know that through that time, Jesus appeared to the disciples, sometimes one, sometimes two, sometimes a handful, sometimes many. Jesus appeared to them at different times. It was not a one-off encounter. It wasn't crucifixion, resurrection, one big appearance, and then ascension. It was progressive. The disciples began to understand more. They had their eyes opened afresh. Clarity came to them. And I think John includes that, not just as historical fact, but to remind us. Remember, John is writing, he says in his gospel, I'm not just writing to those who see and believe. He remembers the words of Jesus who talks about those who won't have seen him in the flesh but will believe. That's us. And so John is reminding us that we grow in our relationship with God. Our revelation of who Christ is, our revelation of the Father, our revelation of the Spirit is progressive. We're told by Paul we are being transformed from one degree of glory into another. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because sometimes we think it should just be one download should be one moment. I didn't believe. Now I do believe. I'll never doubt again. Justification is a moment. There's a moment when we are justified and receive the righteousness of Christ. But we know that sanctification is progressive. We know that we grow in our understanding and in our holiness under God. We need to remember that when our enemy, the devil, jumps on every moment of doubt or debate and says, oh, do you really believe? Or are you really a Christian? Yes, I'm just going through a bit of a challenge right now. Or I'm just learning something new right now. It's good to see that even these first disciples went through a process of revelation before they suddenly, even in this passage, went, oh yeah, now we know. Now we know. John records that Jesus cooks them breakfast. Why does he do that? Well, he does it at one level because it happened and he likes to record what actually happened. But also he's reminding us that the resurrection of Christ is not some ethereal event. It's not abstract. It's not spiritual. I mean, it's deeply spiritual, but it's also deeply physical. Jesus physically rose from the dead. This is a physical event. The risen Christ in his physical resurrection body has gathered wood, has started a fire, has gutted some fish, has made some flatbreads. How amazing is that? He's cooked for them. 
He's cooked them. I love this detail. I love the physicality of it, the reality of it, because this breakfast speaks of God's understanding of our physical as well as our spiritual need. What did we say back in chapter 1? What did we remind ourselves? What does John tell us? The word becomes flesh. The body matters. And here, Christ recognizes these disciples have been fishing all night. They are tired and hungry. They're especially tired because it's been fruitless for most of the night. And when our endeavors seem fruitless, weariness and tiredness comes upon us, doesn't it? Jesus recognizes that. And so what does he do first? He provides breakfast. He sits them down. He serves them. But this breakfast is also couched in spiritual language. Notice what it says. He took bread, broke it, and gave it to them. When was the last time these disciples received bread broken from the hand of Christ? Well, it was just a few days earlier on that Thursday night. They must have recognized that. Sometimes it's a physical action, isn't it, that reminds us of something. Sometimes it's a smell. We're told uh, by scientists that smells are incredibly evocative. They remind us of things in our past. Even from decades before, a smell can evoke a memory. How much more this, fresh bread being handed to them by the Messiah. Yes, they're being reminded. This man here is the man who taught them and walked with them and spoke to them and prayed for them and died for them. And now he is raised. Jesus is connecting them with the Last Supper. The physicality of it communicates at a deep level and should with us, reminds us that when we take bread, we generally don't take bread and fish, we take bread and wine. When we take those things, those elements, that sacrament, the physicality of it should remind us of the love and the sacrifice of Christ. I love the mention of fish. It's, not, yeah, it's, it's specific. Jesus called the disciples to be fishers of men. This is a reminder of their missional call. Jesus invites Peter to bring some of the fish that he has Caught. Why is that detail there, I wonder? Well, I just wonder whether it's this. A reminder again that God has it covered, but he invites us to play our part. So Jesus already made bread, gutted some fish, says there, it's ready. But he encourages, he says, no, no, bring what you've got to. There's that inclusivity of God, of Christ, in the mission that he will ultimately fall Phil, I love that reminder. We may think we don't bring anything to the party, but Jesus says, no, you do. You do. Bring your gift. Bring what you've got. Bring what you can bring, because I want you to own what we're in together. In Matthew's gospel, we have the great co-mission. We're called into the mission of Christ. Our part might be a small part, but God wants to know it's an important part. I don't know if you've ever wondered why John records 153 fish. I mean, did they count them? I, 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 you kind of, sometimes you have to play in your mind with these things. Did someone literally go, hang on, I'll come for breakfast in a minute. 151, 152, 153, I'm coming. I, I don't know. What I do know is John records it. 
Some scholars who want to kind of uh, really spiritualize this passage say, oh, well, it's a created story and the number 153 represented the known people groups at the time and it's, it's pictorial, it's illustrative of the fact that Christ dies for the whole world. I mean, that's lovely. And it's true, Christ did die for the whole world. I think more, it's just a detail that John includes because he wants to remind us again I'm not making this up. This happened. This happened. When Tim Keller speaks on this passage, he references a number of details in the passage just for the fact that it really happened. These are real events, not fairy stories. And then at the end of the verses we read, it says this was the third time Jesus had appeared. Why is that significant? Well, Jewish law demanded that for a truth to be a fact, you needed two or even better, three witnesses. And as if John is saying to his Jewish readers, this is the third witness. This is the third witness. John wants to leave us in no doubt this really happened. Let's read on. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. When you are old, you will stretch out your hand. Someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to them, follow me. For those of us who, like me, have a life of discipleship littered with moments of total muppetry, Peter is such a joy to us, isn't he? I mean, does he not understand? I mean, I know we are reading this passage with hindsight and maybe having read it numbers of times before, but surely Peter must realise that the three questions that Jesus asked him are to cover the three times that he denied Christ. And yet he seems to miss it. So what's going on here? I mean, clearly, the other disciples must have known. We know they were close enough to overhear what is being said. And I imagine them as a group sitting around the fire. They've eaten breakfast. They're sitting there. They're licking the oil from the fish off their fingers, maybe a little bit more with the bread. And everyone knows that Peter, sitting next to Jesus, denied him. Peter feels bad. The disciples feel bad. No one wants to raise the issue, spoil the mood, mention the elephant in the room. And so Jesus, as so often with the disciples, opens up the difficult conversation. Notice the tenderness of Jesus. What a model for how we should treat those who 
hurt or disappoint us. Jesus does not complain. He does not expose. He does not accuse. He simply asks. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Notice what happens here. John, in writing his gospel, refers to Peter as Peter throughout the passage. But Jesus refers to Peter as Simon, son of John. Jesus does it three times. Peter gets frustrated, but Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. You see, Jesus knows what lies ahead for Peter. That's why he describes something of his future. And so he wants to make sure, Jesus wants to ensure that he equips Peter for what lies ahead. Jesus does not want Peter to carry any fear, any guilt forward, any unforgiveness, any sense of doubt. So what does he do? He takes him not just to the moment of his denial a few, mo- a few days ago. He takes him all the way back to when he first called him. When he first called Peter, he wasn't called Peter, he called him as Simon. He called him out of his old identity. Simon, son of John, that's how you were identified in that culture. You were defined by who your father was. Your business would have been your father's business. So what is Jesus doing? He is taking, John, taking Simon back to the beginning. Why is he doing that? He's doing that because he wants Peter's restoration to be total. He takes him back to the beginning and he gives three opportunities for Peter to examine his heart and check that he loves the Lord. Because Jesus saves completely. Jesus forgives completely. Jesus restores completely. Jesus reconciles completely. Paul says in Colossians 1 that all things are reconciled in Christ. And so here, Jesus reconciles Peter completely. He reminds him in those words, Simon, son of John, of his original identity, and he restores to him his new identity and purpose. You're no longer a son of John, a fisherman. You're now a son of God, a fisher of men, a pastor. Feed my lambs, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. What a beautiful model and demonstration of the gospel. For what Jesus has done for Peter here, he does for us today. He knows our original identity. He knows we were dead in our sin. He knows we were broken and live in a broken world. He calls us by name and he totally transforms us. His forgiveness is total. His justification is complete. We are fully righteous because we carry the righteousness of Christ. John, in recording this, is not just re-establishing Peter in the eyes of the disciple and reminding them of that fact. He's reminding every disciple who reads this that their transformation, their forgiveness has been completed in Christ. And we carry no more guilt and no more shame and no more condemnation. Jesus 
is looking Peter in the eye and saying, do you love me? Jesus is looking us in the eye and saying, do you love me? And then we finish the whole gospel, this chapter and the gospel with these final verses. Peter, maybe a little bit embarrassed by the moment, turns and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. That's John. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? It's a little bit of uh, autobiographical detail from the gospel writer there. When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Why does John include these last verses? Some have suggested that the gospel should finish at the end of chapter 20, or maybe at least at the end of uh, verse 19 with Peter's restoration. Why is it repeated? Well, two possible reasons, maybe both are true. Firstly, we have to remember that John is writing to a real group of people in the first century. And it would appear, as is mentioned here, that a rumour has started that actually John will live until Christ's return. We know John was an older man. He'd lived beyond the natural age in that season. And at one level, John is just trying to crush that rumour by reminding people what Jesus actually said. But secondly, and probably more important to us, it's a reminder through the eyes of Peter that we can all get distracted by what others are doing, by what God is saying to others, by others' choices, by others' lifestyle, by others' gifting. It is very easy for us to live a life distracted by other people. And John is reminding us through these words of Jesus that our focus needs to be on Christ. And the only question we need to answer is not what does someone else think about Jesus, but what do we think about Jesus? Notice what Jesus answers. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. You must follow me, says Jesus. In those words, John summarizes his whole gospel. He's written this gospel that people would see Jesus and make a decision about Christ. John's final plea to you, to me, to us is this. You must follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this gospel. We thank you for the message it contains. That for God so loved the world, he sent his only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. And the eternal life is this, to know the living God and the life that he brings. Lord, help us to follow you afresh.
Amen.